following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we're continuing, continuing our series in this first and earliest of the four Gospels written in the mid-60s AD, uh, primarily to a Roman audience in the Roman Empire. And Mark actually wasn't a disciple of Jesus, but he was a close associate and friend of Peter's. And so there's a very real sense in which the Gospel of Mark is the memoirs of Peter. And that's why we have eyewitness details and texture and testimony throughout. It's the last week here in chapter 12. It's the last week of Jesus's life. And that's because tensions between him and the religious leaders of Israel have reached a boiling point, a a fever pitch. Two weeks ago, they uh, came to him and they tried to trap him with a political question. Last week, we we saw them come to him with a kind of theological question. And this week, they're going to approach him with a moral question. But after this interaction, he's actually not going to speak to the religious leaders again until the end of chapter 14 when they arrest him uh, along with the Roman guards in Gethsemane. Here's what I think is the main idea of this very familiar passage, this, this well-known scene in Mark 12, 28 to 34. The law of God's kingdom is simple. We love others best when we love him first. The law of God's kingdom is simple. We love others best when we love him first. We'll be thinking about this as we make our way through this brief scene. Uh, we'll, we'll think about it in three simple points. First, love God. Second, love people. And third, step inside. Love God. Love people. Step inside. First, love God. Look there at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. 
At, that's referring to the passage we looked at last week. Remember I said there was a theological question, a religious group called the Sadducees had tried to trip Jesus up and embarrass him in front of the crowds, but it had boomeranged on their own heads. One of the teachers of the law came, Mark tells us, and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Notice Jesus is being approached by an individual, not a group. That's because all the groups have given up. They've tried to trap him only to fail repeatedly. So here at last we have one solitary scribe who's maybe been sent from one of the larger groups who are still back there licking their wounds. This guy is a specialist in Jewish law. Not just the 613 commands in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Not just those, but also an expert in the elaborate scaffolding of oral traditions that the Pharisees had added. In one of the swirling debates at the time among rabbis, a a, a typical conversation was which biblical laws of all of those, the 613 plus the additional ones of all biblical laws, which ones are light and which ones are heavy? And it was common to pose this question to rabbis. Hey, what do you think is the heaviest? How would you summarize the Torah, the books of the law, in a nutshell? This man is not asking something he's ignorant of. This is his area of expertise. And notice he's also not asking, hey, which is the only law that matters? Can we do away with the rest? No. He's asking, Jesus, Which one is central? Which takes precedent? Which one is heaviest? There's no indication this is just another trap. That's how this scene differs from the ones before it. And so because this question, unlike the previous one, seems to be completely sincere, Jesus answers it straight up. Verse 29 The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This statement is well known, and we often think Jesus goes first. Like if I were to ask you, what is the first and greatest commandment? You may think, you may assume Jesus goes first to the words, love the Lord your God, but he doesn't. That is the first and greatest commandment, but he includes the preamble. He takes this Jewish man back to the very center of the Jewish faith. We read it earlier in the the service in our corporate scripture reading. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, that's what Jesus is quoting here. Every morning and evening, faithful Jews recited the Shema. That's the, that's the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Even today, it's recited at the beginning of every synagogue worship service. Jesus didn't have to include this part. He could have just begun with the summons to love. But he begins with the summons to hear. O Israel, listen up. Listen up yet again. 
the Lord is one. He's undivided in his being and unrivaled in his glory. This is what the first of the Ten Commandments had been all about, isn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, because Israel, because you belong to the one true and living God, then you must not bow. You must never bow physically or spiritually to any counterfeit God. And the most amazing thing, the most amazing thing about this one true and living God, and I have evidence for you, exhibit A, the book on your lap, okay? As evidenced by the book on your lap, this God is a talker. And he didn't have to be. See, we take it for granted that he has spoken to us. We're not astounded by this fact, but he didn't have to be. He could have remained silent. He didn't owe any words to his creatures and certainly not any words to those of us, all of us who have become rebels against his authority. Because our first parents, Adam and Eve, listened, they heard the whisper of a snake over the word of God. And because we've all done the same, God could have given us what we deserve. He could have fairly, rightly given us what we deserve, the ultimate cosmic silent treatment forever. But instead, instead of giving us the silent treatment we deserved, he spoke to us. He pursued us. He came after us. As one theologian put it, he forfeited his personal privacy to befriend us. Folks, this is the story of the gospel. Though we've all run away from him, plugging our ears, estranging ourselves from God, yet still he came and pursued and chased us down and opened our ears and our hearts to hear the good news that God the Son The son he sent was perfect where we haven't been. Jesus always heard. He always listened. He always heeded. He always followed his heavenly father in ways we have not. And yet, what happened on the cross? What happened as he bore the weight of our sin? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And was met with only silence. He got the silent treatment that we deserved so that we wouldn't have to. But then God just started counting to three. And in response to his son's cry, it is finished. The father said, it is indeed, and raised him from the grave. And friend, if you turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, I mean, you're here, you're hearing a message about love, love. We all are about love. You may think, well, that's surely the most important thing he's talking about today. Well, It is the central point of this passage, but the most important thing you could hear if you have yet to bow to Christ in faith is not that you need to start loving him and loving others. It's first that you need to start trusting him, resting in him, relying on him for the perfect record of his son. And if you turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus today, you will be saved from sin and out of death too. Hear, O Israel. And then Jesus says, love. Hear and love. Love the Lord your God. 
And notice the command comes with four alls. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. In other words, the call is comprehensive. God's not just interested in your actions, but also your attitude. He wants your feet, your hands, your mind, your heart. He wants it all. As one person put it, God's wholehearted love must not be answered in a half-hearted way. The Lord of heaven and earth, friends, lays rightful claim to every aspect of your personality, every aspect of your life. You were made by him, which means he alone owned you, and you were made for him, which means he alone can satisfy you. And this is good news. It's good news to know why you were made. It's good news to know that you actually have a purpose. It's good news to know that when you submit your life to him, trusting his wisdom, then you will be on the path to freedom and joy and peace. No, I didn't say when you submit to him that everything in your life will magically get better and that you won't have struggles, far from it, but you will be on the path as you defer to his wisdom and living in his world, you will be on the path to living with true joy. The fact that God has creator rights over you. That's what I'm talking about here. Creator rights over you may seem daunting, may seem intimidating, may seem like not the best of news, hard to swallow, but it's good. It's good. Because just think logically about it. The one who flung the stars into space and who spoke galaxies into being with a word is overqualified to govern just one or two little provinces in your life. He deserves it all. He deserves it all. That's why he demands it all. He demands it all because he deserves it all. And you can trust him with it all. It's also interesting that in Deuteronomy 6, the Israelites were called to love the Lord their God. This is what we corporately recited earlier. The Israelites were called to love the Lord their God with heart, soul, and strength. But Jesus adds another word, mind. Mind. That's not in Deuteronomy 6. This means, among other things, that God is honored when we think when we think you don't have to check your your brain at the door of christianity god is glorified when we think and when we think well about him and by think well i don't just mean nice thoughts i mean accurate thoughts if you're following jesus here's a, a simple question for you do you think of yourself as a theologian This is addressed to all of you who consider yourselves Christians, not just the older folks. Do you think of yourself as a theologian? And when you think about loving God, loving God, loving, 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 does theology come to mind? It didn't used to for me. I'll be honest about that. It didn't used to for me, but when I was a sophomore in college, I was making my way through the book of Psalms, and I came to Psalm 111, and I I encountered a verse that startled me. I remember where I was sitting. Psalm 111.2, great are the works of the Lord, blank, by all who trust or all who delight in them. What verb would I have expected there? Great are the works of the Lord, blank, by all who delight in them. 
Maybe great are the works of the Lord acknowledged by all who delight in them. Great are the works of the Lord remembered by all who delight in them. Maybe even greater the works of the Lord celebrated by all who delight in them. But the verse says studied. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. It's not just nice thoughts, it's accurate thoughts. If, if a stranger were to come up to me and ask me to tell them about my wife, Megan, and I immediately started smiling and tearing up and gushing about how she's the most amazing woman I've ever known. I'm so happy to be married to her. Uh, you know, I, 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 I love her more than any other human in the world. She's, she's from Oregon. She has red hair. She hates chocolate. Would my chocolate-loving brunette from Virginia be honored by that description? Of course not. It doesn't matter the intensity of the feeling. It doesn't matter how much you gush. If you're describing someone inaccurately, it doesn't bring honor to them. And if we are so careful to describe accurately the humans we love, why are we lackadaisical in the way we talk about God? So brothers and sisters, how are you doing with this first and greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Here's a practical piece of advice. Find another member of this church, another member of this church, and meet up with them over the course of weeks or months to read through the letter of of 1 John. Now, why do I say that? Why, why is that the homework assignment, the encouragement? Read with another church member through 1 John. Well, because the whole purpose of that letter, John tells us explicitly, the whole purpose of that letter is to give assurance, to give assurance to true believers by asking a series of diagnostic questions about what you love. Do you love the Savior? Do you hate your sin? Do you love God's people? Do you love the church? If the answer is yes, yes, and yes, not perfectly, no, not perfectly, but genuinely and increasingly then you have every reason to be confident that you belong to God. And any love you have for, them, for him is evidence, this is why it should encourage you, any love you have for him, even if at times it feels just like a, a, a little flame about to go out, any love you have for him or his people in your heart is evidence that he has first loved you. And so if you love Christ and his people, you should be encouraged, deeply encouraged. Love God. Number two, love people. Love people. Verse 31, Jesus says, the second, okay, that is, he means the second most important one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The whole duty of man summed up in one word, love. Love for God and love for for people. If love for God corresponds to the first half of the Ten Commandments, 
the first table of the law, those commands, those rules about our relationship with God, love for neighbor, love for people corresponds to the second half of the Ten Commandments, the second table of the law, those rules about our relationships with one another. So Jesus has taken the two tables of the law and he has said, this is what's preeminent. And Jesus is here in verse 31 quoting a specific verse from Leviticus 19, Leviticus 19:18, written centuries before, which read, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this scribe uh, got more than he asked for. He asked for one command and he gets two. And the fact that Jesus does this The fact that Jesus gives two commands implies that it takes both to fulfill the one will of God. And combining them, though it's so familiar to us, we can't imagine a world in which you're not combining love of God and love of neighbor. But though it is familiar to us, it was at the time revolutionary. Loving God and loving neighbor were separately affirmed in Israel, but there is no evidence that before Jesus, anyone had brought them together. But notice that not just that he combines them, but notice how. How does he combine these two commands? Well, he doesn't just fuse them together into some kind of amorphous hybrid some kind of, you know, goo. No, there is an order. There is a structure. There is a priority. Loving God comes first. And so this means that while they are distinguishable, they're not just an amorphous goo, they're distinguishable, they are also inseparable. Distinguishable yet inseparable. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can't, you can't love the Lord your God in isolation from the relationships in your life. In fact, the way you can love people best, the way you can love your neighbor best is by loving the Lord your God most. The way you can love your friends best is to love God most. The way you can love your roommate best is to love God most. The way you can love your your boss best is by loving God most. The way you can love your employees best is to love God most. The way you can love your spouse best is to love God most. The way you can love your kids best is not to love them most, but to love God most. Brothers and sisters, we can't love anything the right way until we love God most. And as we love him, as we put him first, how then ought we love our neighbor? Jesus says, as yourself. Now, don't get me started on this. This is not an implicit command to love yourself. Jesus assumes you're doing that just fine. You have an endless supply of self-concern. Though the Bible assumes you're going to love yourself, it assumes it. And it's not a bad thing to care about yourself in appropriate ways, but the Bible assumes you're going to do it. That's why it doesn't need to command you to do it. In fact, it, it, it assumes it. It never features it as a virtue. In fact, 2 Timothy 3 says, there will be terrible times in the last days. And here's the first example Paul gives. There will be terrible times in the last days 
people will be lovers of themselves. You want to know things are getting bad? People will be lovers chiefly of themselves. This is the message of our world today. Love yourself. Love yourself. Love yourself. Love yourself. Jesus crashes, crashes in and says, no, deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. The, the world says, love yourself. Love yourself. Jesus says, okay, you want to talk love? Let's talk love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor your neighbor that he created in his own image and likeness. Keep your finger in Mark 12 and turn to 1 John 4. 1 John 4 is near the end of the New Testament. This is the, the letter that I encouraged you all to meet up with someone to read through at some point in the coming weeks. I just want to show you a couple verses from 1 John chapter 4 because they bear so well on what Jesus is saying in Mark 12. 1 John 4, starting in verse 19. We love because he, that is God, first loved us. So you hear that priority there. We love because God first loved us. 1 John 4, 20. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. Now, just stop there. John is not mincing words. John doesn't merely say whoever claims to love God but hates a brother or sister is merely inconsistent. No, he says you're a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Verse 21, and he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love God their brother and sister. You can turn back to Mark. Do, do you see the logic here in what Jesus is saying and in what John is saying? If we truly love God, if you truly love God, you will increasingly grow to love what he loves. And what does he love? What does God love above all? Those who bear his image. Yes, sin has warped and distorted the image of God and man, but it has not eradicated it. Everybody you encounter, down to the most annoying person, down to the most wicked, blasphemous, confused person, you can imagine everyone you encounter is bearing the fingerprints of deity, is bearing the, the mark, the signature, the imprint, the insignia of heaven. As C.S. Lewis famously pointed out, it is a serious thing to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. 
there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. The stakes are that high. The stakes are really that high. Loving people but not God is idolatry. Loving people but not God is idolatry, but loving God and not people is the epitome of cruelty. One of my Christian heroes, my my absolute Christian heroes, one of the saints I'm most excited to meet in glory is Frederick Douglass. He was born into enslavement in 1817 or 1818. He never knew exactly which year. And when he was 14 or 15, he became the property of a man named Mr. Covey. Mr. Covey. And Mr. Covey was known in the community as a devout Christian man. Douglas had taught himself, even as a slave, to read, which had given him some hope. It had brightened his eyes. It had put some wind in his sails. But that didn't last. Years later, after he had managed to escape, he reflected on those teenage years. Quote, Mr. Covey succeeded in breaking me. I was broken in body, soul, and spirit. My natural elasticity was crushed. My intellect languished. The disposition to read departed. The cheerful spark that lingered about my eye died. The dark night of slavery closed in upon me. And behold, a man transformed into a brute. A man transformed into a brute. And in one of his most famous passages, Douglas reflects, quote, I have found that to make a contented slave, it's necessary to make a thoughtless one. It's necessary to darken his moral and mental vision and as far as possible to annihilate the power of reason. He must be able to detect no inconsistencies in slavery. He must be made to feel that slavery is right. And he can be brought to that only when he ceases to be a man. This is an extreme example, but this is exactly what happens when God's image in man is vandalized. When God's image in man is defaced. The reason I bring up the example of slavery is not just to make you uncomfortable or to be controversial, it's because we're hearing this sermon this morning in a particular city with a particular history. For almost five decades, Richmond was the largest slave market in North America outside of New Orleans. It didn't take long for slave trading to become the greatest driver of our city's economy. To put it bluntly, Richmond was the most strategic slave trading hub in the South's largest slave trading state. And this wicked industry, friends, was enabled in no small part. I wish I didn't have to say this. I have to. If we're going to be intellectually honest, we have to. It was enabled in no small part 
by professing Christians who spoke and wrote eloquently about the first and greatest commandment to love the Lord their God while flagrantly violating the second. Loving God never looks like harming your neighbor. Obeying the first commandment never looks like violating the second. But just as loving God never looks like harming your neighbor, loving your neighbor never looks like offending God. It's an insidious lie in our culture today that the only way to love someone is to agree with and affirm everything they do, everything they say. No! Who do we think we are? I mean, the best way you can love me is not to agree with and affirm everything about me, but to correct me when I go astray, when I start to drift from the words and the wisdom of God. Real love desires what's best for the other person, even if they can't yet see it, which means you're willing to do something really hard, and that is take relational risks relational risks. Yes, with gentleness, with humility, with brokenheartedness, with compassion, but taking relational risks for the other person's ultimate good. In other words, love seeks what will bring the most glory to God in the life of your neighbor. Love seeks what will bring the most glory to God in the life of your neighbor. And brothers and sisters, if we're going to have any success, if we're going to get any traction in loving our neighbors like this and loving one another like this, we're going to have to refuse to operate, refuse to operate as if love is a feeling. Because if we just decide to show love when we feel like it, if we just display costly love when we feel like it, we're rarely going to show real love at all. The world says love is an emotion. The Bible says, no, it's a choice. It's not just a, a feeling. It's not just a sweet, popular sentiment. Love sacrifices. Love lays itself out for the other person in obedience to God, the God who made them in his image, or it's not the real thing. But we can get even more practical because let's be honest with ourselves it's easy to love humanity in general. I mean, it's easy to love a city, to love a neighborhood, even to love a church. What's difficult is loving actual people. A neighbor who is loved generally, and this goes for church members, this goes for neighbors, friends, any person, any person who is loved generally but never specifically is not loved biblically. Well, let's not overestimate. Let's not overestimate how meaningfully we can love people around the world while underestimating how meaningfully we can love the people God has actually placed next door or next to our desk or next to us on the sidelines of our kids' soccer games, the people God has put in our lives for a reason. I mean, do you actually know your neighbors? 
on your street, in your apartment complex, in your workplace, on those sidelines. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have missed the point. We have missed it. We have missed the big E on the I chart if we can recite a thousand Bible verses but can't recite any of our neighbors' names. And are you praying for them? I mean, just ask yourself this question. If God actually answered my prayers, sometimes we lack the faith to believe he actually would do that, but he does do that. If God actually answered your prayers, would any of your neighbors notice? If God actually answered your prayers, would any of your neighbors then know Christ? Or would your family just have a lot of security and safety and stuff? Verse 32, the the scribe replies to Jesus, Well said, teacher. It's an emphatic response. He's saying, yes, absolutely. That's a beautiful answer. You're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. Verse 33, to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This guy knows his Bible. All right, from 1 Samuel to Psalms to Proverbs to Hosea, this is a key theme. He's putting his finger on a key theme throughout the Hebrew scriptures. The essence of true religion is not elaborate sacrifices, but faith and love. This guy gets it. He understands that when believers exude love, when believers exude love, that they're they're actually offering to God the one sacrifice he most desires, the one that's most pleasing to him. Love God, love people, and third and finally, step inside. Look at verse 34. When Jesus saw that the scribe had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So Jesus commends this guy for his answer. And he says something so interesting. In fact, it's the only time we know of when Jesus says this to someone in the Gospels. You are not far from the kingdom. Why does he say that? And why of all people he interacts with in the Gospels, does he say it to this guy? Well, I think the fact that this guy went out of his way to add that final little observation in verse 33, loving God and neighbor is, what did he say? More important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. I think that shows that he's catching on to something vital. It's dawning on him that Those things, burnt offerings and sacrifices, though they had their place, they cannot permanently atone for sin. I mean, just remember, sometimes we can read the Bible and we can forget where we are in the story. Where are they standing? They're in the temple courts. As they're having this interaction, they can smell livestock, (laughs) They can hear the sound of of animals being slaughtered. They can hear and smell the sacrifices. And it's dawning on this man that the law he's an expert in is an impossible standard to perfectly keep. 
And the closer he gets to seeing this, the closer he gets to seeing that all the things he's hearing and smelling, all the commotion, the whole religious temple complex of sacrifices, none of that can finally win him permanent access to God. And the closer he gets to seeing this, the closer and closer and closer he's coming to understanding the gospel. So Jesus means to encourage him. This is not a rebuke. This is an encouragement. You're beginning to see. You're moving in the right direction. You're nearing the threshold. And notice Jesus doesn't say, you're so close. Just try a little harder. Just please like my teaching more. No. The way you cross the threshold, the way you enter God's kingdom is simply by embracing Jesus as king. By responding to the news, Jesus has been announcing ever since chapter 1, verse 15, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe that I've come to fling open access to the presence of God. Step through the door. Kids, teens, listen to me here. Many of you are surrounded by Christian stuff. You can't get away with it. Maybe it even annoys you. You may not admit that in church, but you cannot evade. You cannot get away from Christian people, Christian parents, Christian language, Christian music, Christian facts. Some of you even go to a Christian school. But the lesson of this story is that you need to personally cross that threshold. None of those Christian influences in your life can carry you across. Why was the teacher of this law near, but not yet in? Was it because he lacked knowledge? No. Morality? No. Sincerity? No. He just was not yet relying Jesus, relying on Jesus as more than a teacher. Relying on Jesus as not just a teacher, but also as his master his captain, his leader, and his Lord. The lesson here is that it's possible to be within an inch of God's kingdom. And it's not just possible to live within an inch of God's kingdom, it's also possible to die near, but not in, within an inch of God's kingdom. Oh, friends, especially you young people, don't assume you're in if you're merely near. Don't assume you're close enough that it'll all work out. Don't assume that, well, you'll get serious about faith later when you grow up. You'll take the final step then. Listen, the step may seem small. It may seem daunting. I don't know what it seems to you, but I can tell you this. It makes all the difference. Some of you have been on airplanes. If not, you've certainly seen them in movies. When you stand at the door of an airplane, right at the entrance, one step and you're on your way to a new destination. But if you don't take that step, if you just stay there, if you just loiter around, if you just delay, if you just think, well, there, there will be time to get on the plane before it takes off, before you know it, you won't be going anywhere. We don't get to hear how this man responded. Mark is filled with 
interactions with Jesus where we hear how people responded. But we don't get to hear how this man responded. We're, we're only left to wonder. And I, want, and I wonder if the reason is because Mark is deliberately leaving the question open to us so that we would ask ourselves, am I near? Am I in? Have I stepped onto the airplane? Have I entered the kingdom of God? Am I heading toward a new and ultimate destination in heaven? Well, in conclusion, this this brief passage we've looked at today is, without a doubt, Scripture's most famous statement about loving others and ultimately loving God. But you got to see, we will remain unable to do either. We will remain unable to love people or love God the way he intends if we're trapped by our sin. See, see God designed the world. He, he fashioned the universe with a particular kind of structure. He designed it for us to put him first, others second, and ourselves last. But sin has reversed that order. Sin encourages us. It entices us to put ourselves first, to put others second, and God somewhere in the background. So how do we free ourselves from this trap, this sort of upside-down trap? How do we reorder our loves properly? Not by just staring in the mirror and focusing on your own love, but mainly by studying. There's that word again, studying staring at and becoming enamored with God's love for you. And the supreme demonstration, remember, it's Tuesday in the final week of Jesus' life. The supreme demonstration of these two commands, love of God and love of neighbor, is coming in just 72 hours. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we have not kept the greatest commandment for 10 minutes, much less our whole lives. But we praise you that your son Jesus did. We praise you that he never wavered in his affection and devotion to you. We praise you that he listened, that he heard, that he heeded. And we pray that you would help us to cross that threshold into your kingdom by faith and to live lives Lord, of love in response to your abundant grace. And we pray these things in the beautiful name of your Son, our Savior and Lord. Amen.